0: Open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 12. 1 Samuel chapter 12 is where we're going to be this morning. We're going through the whole chapter. 1 Samuel chapter 12. I want you to imagine that you're on trial. Your eternal destiny hangs in the balance. If you're acquitted, eternal life is yours. But if you're guilty, eternal condemnation, eternal torment. You are representing yourself in this trial. The prosecution, the plaintiff, the judge, and the jury is God Himself. The question at the center of the trial is, do you love God with your heart soul, mind, and strength. The gavel pounds and the trial begins. Prosecution calls its first witness, you. You walk up to the stand, you place your hand on the Bible and swear an oath. I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. And with that, you take the stand. The question is posed by God Himself. Do you love me with your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Keep in mind, He reminds you, you are under oath. You respond, yes, of course I do. I love you with my heart, soul, mind, and strength. To which the follow-up comes. Prove it. What would you say? What would you do? How would you respond? How would you prove that you love God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength? What would you do if you were on trial for the God of the universe? In our passage this morning, Israel finds herself in a situation much like that, except instead of, for us, it's kind of a thought experiment, maybe looking at the future of what it might be like to stand trial, in this case, Israel finds herself actually on trial in front of Samuel and in front of God himself. Let's look at our passage, 1 Samuel chapter 12, 1-25. Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice in all that you have said to me and have made a king over you. Now behold the king walks before you and I'm old and gray and behold my sons are with you I have walked before you from my youth until this day Here I am testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed Whose ox have I taken or whose donkey have I taken Or whom have I defrauded Whom have I oppressed Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me, and I will restore it to you. They said, You have not defrauded us, or oppressed us, or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, The Lord is witness against you, and his anointed is witness this day, that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, He is witness. Samuel said to the people, The Lord is witness who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now, therefore, stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and for your fathers. When Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them, then your fathers cried out to the Lord and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God. And he sold them into the hands of Sisera, commander of the army of Hatzel, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab. And they fought against them. And they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned because we have forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. But now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies, that we may serve you. And the Lord sent Jerubbaal and Barak, and Jephthah, and Samuel, and delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side, and you lived in safety. And when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Amorites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us, when the Lord your God was your king. And now behold, the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked, behold, the Lord has set a king over you. If you will will fear the Lord and serve Him and obey His voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord and if both you and the King who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your King. Now therefore stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is not... Is it not wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain. And you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day. And all the people greatly feared the Lord in Samuel. And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. And Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people, for His great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for Himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, and I will instruct you in the good and the right way. Only fear the Lord and serve Him faithfully with all your heart, for consider what great things He has done for you. But if you still do, if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your word is before us. And I pray that you would help us to understand it. If we are truly to be people of the book, if we're to be people who honor your word above all, then I pray that as we analyze everything that you've put before us, As we look at word by word, line by line, your text. I pray that you would apply it to our hearts that we may obey. That we may not just be people who academically study your word, but actually apply it to our life. That's going to take thought on our part. That's going to take the searching of our hearts. Only your spirit can do that. By revealing to us sin by showing us where this text applies in our life, I pray that you would do that. I pray that you would speak in place of me, straight to the heart of every single person in this room. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you read a passage like this in isolation, I, especially from the rest of the Bible, I think it, it might make little sense to you. It doesn't seem to jive with what is happening in the book of 1 Samuel it, it seems like this is now the eighth or ninth time that Samuel has kind of handed off the reins to Saul and at the very least you you will have trouble understanding what's going on in this ceremony you need to recall the set of rules that the children of Israel were to live by and what was the real goal of the covenant that they're under in order to understand this passage. You probably remember that there was a time when the people of Israel were in Egypt, and the Lord went to them through the person of Moses and Aaron, and He pulled them out and rescued them from slavery. And the expressed intention for that rescue plan was told to Pharaoh by Moses that they are to go out into the wilderness so that there they might serve the Lord. So it's with that intent, that that expressed purpose that they're going to Mount Sinai, the base of Mount Sinai, where they're going to serve the Lord out in the wilderness. And, And we're told that there at the base of Mount Sinai that the Lord made them His people. And He set up a covenant. He drew up this covenant. We call it the Mosaic Covenant, which sounds really fancy. And if you really want to impress your friends with how much Bible knowledge you have, you throw a word out there like Mosaic Covenant. It's very simple. It just means the covenant that God made through Moses. All right? It's the Mosaic covenant. He he made this covenant with them that he would be their God and they would be his people. And what was on the line was their obedience to the law. It was very simple. You see, here's the covenant, it comes with rules. Here's the law you obey the law and you get covenant blessings. You break the law and you get covenant curses. So far, very simple, right? But what really makes a people God's people? You really have to ask yourself that. What is it that made them His people? What made Him their God? Was it simply obedience to the law? Is it simply, if you obey the law... If you simply don't speed, you don't commit murder, you don't, do, you don't let your ox gore somebody else. If you simply just obey the law, then we're good. Was that all that made them his people? Well, it turns out the answer is yes and no. Moses tells the people in Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 to 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. See, this is the point of the commandments of the Lord. wasn't merely that they would just obey the law, but that the obedience to the law would come from the deep-seated love that they actually have for God. In fact, what, what we find out in the Old Testament is they can't obey the law of God, not as it was intended to be obeyed, without a deep-seated love for God first. It's the only way they could actually obey was if they loved the Lord with their heart, which is exactly what Moses is telling them. If they love the Lord, then the commands that He gives them will be on their heart. That's what he's saying. Look, if you really love me, the commands will be on the top of your heart. It will be your foremost consideration. So the fulfillment of the Mosaic Covenant, to fulfill what Moses was requiring of them, what the Lord was requiring of them through Moses, the fulfillment of the Mosaic Covenant is a people who obey God's statutes from minds, hearts, and bodies that truly love Him. You get it? That's what is being required right there in Deuteronomy 6. So you'll find, as you read through much of the Old Testament, when judgment is pronounced on the people of Israel, usually it comes through the mouth of a prophet. God puts His Word in in the mouth of a prophet. And the prophet will call the people stiff-necked or hard-hearted. Sometimes God Himself will call them stiff-necked, and hard-hearted. And the reason he uses that as a descriptor is not only because they have chosen to disobey, but because their disobedience is evidence of a deep-seated, heart-level hatred for God. It's part of a stone heart that doesn't even want to obey the commandments that God has given because deep down they actually hate Him. And then what you'll find is also the opposite descriptor of those who obey the law or those who seek after God. A few chapters ago, we saw men who were described to us as men of valor. They followed after Saul. And the reason that they followed after Saul and they submitted to the king that God had placed over the people is plainly stated to us in the text in 1 Samuel 10, verse 26. You can even just look back there in your word. In verse 26 it says, Saul also went went to his home at Gibeah, and with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. Following that, we'll also see in the coming weeks that David is sought out because he is a man after God's own heart. So we find out that it's the heart of obedience that God is actually after. It's not mere rote duty that people are following the law. It's a heart that has been forever changed and seeks after the Lord, that truly loves the Lord, and therefore it obeys. It's a heart that's been truly transformed. It's been granted new life by His Spirit so that the people who are touched by Him actually love Him and therefore desire to obey Him. That is what God is after. So we come to our passage this morning, and really what we see here is a trial. And it's a trial where three parties are present and Samuel is more or less conducting the trial in a manner of speaking. Three parties present, Samuel, God, and the people. Two parties are at odds with each other. It's God versus the people of Israel. And what we're going to see here is two conclusions that we can safely draw as a result of this trial. The first is that the Lord is always faithful to His Word. The Lord is always faithful to His Word. In your Bibles, you probably see the title at the head of this chapter that says something like Samuel's farewell address. Something like that, anyway. Well, there's certainly a formal transfer of power where Samuel is going to fade more or less into the background and Saul's going to more or less come to the foreground. There's a formal transfer of power, but Samuel isn't disappearing off the scene. In fact, If history is any indication, it's likely he hangs around for another 30 years after this, active in the life of Israel. This is not Samuel's farewell address. We're going to see him more in the coming chapters. Before Saul actually takes the reins of the kingdom and is actually anointed king once and for all and has some control and authority over the situations, there needs to be a proper examination. There was a crime that took place In Israel, asking for a king, or nay, demanding a king. And we we haven't done proper analysis of this crime scene, and we need to. So we're going to have a trial. And the main question is, who is guilty of breaking the Mosaic Covenant? Who is guilty of failing to keep their end of the deal? Was it God, or was it you? So Samuel takes a stand and allows himself to be examined by the people. Maybe it was Him that led them astray. Look at verse 3. Here I am. Testify against me before the Lord and before His anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? Or whom have I defrauded? Or whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Testify against me and I will restore it to you. They said, you have not defrauded us or oppressed us or taken anything from any man's hand. And he said to them, "The Lord is witness against you, and his anointed is witness this day, that you have not found anything in my hand." And they said, "He is witness." So Samuel's name is cleared before the people. He is clearly not guilty of any wrongdoing. His own leadership is vindicated before the people. He has appointed, he did appoint his sons, and his sons defrauded people. But if you notice that he says in verse 2 that "My sons are here among you," And I take that to mean that he has taken them down from their post and has placed them among the people. Samuel is not guilty of leading the people in any transgression of any covenant the Lord has ever made with Israel. So then, Samuel transitions to the Lord. Let's put his actions on trial. Let's look at verse 6. Samuel said to the people, The Lord is witness who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now therefore stand still that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed before you and before your fathers. So he's telling them what he's about to do. I'm about to plead the case of the Lord before you. I'm going to testify on his behalf. So Samuel is going to essentially examine all the actions that the Lord has taken to Israel and he's going to carefully explain the way God has responded to Israel in the past. And so, really, from verses 8 all the way to 13 is Samuel just going through rapid fire through some of the major events in Israel's history where she's going to be proven unfaithful to God. But what he's doing for them is magnifying not only God's faithfulness to them, but also their sins. After you hear all of God's faithful activities, how can you not be left with, why on earth? Would you ever be unfaithful to Him? Look at all the things that He has done for you. So let's just walk through verses 8 to 13. You can follow along with your eyes. I'm not going to read it exactly, but I'm going to go along. You can trace it with your finger. In verse 8, the Egyptians enslaved Israel. Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron to bring them out of Egypt and dwell in the Promised Land. Do you have any reason to complain against God yet? No. In verse 9, Israel forgot God. So he sold them into the hand of Sisera, the Philistines and the Moabites. In verse 10, the people cried out. And in verse 11, the Lord raised up judges to deliver them. In spite of all of their, their unfaithfulness to the Lord, he still raised them up. Jerubal, Barak, uh, Jephthah, and even Samuel himself to deliver them. Finally, we see in verse 12, Nahash of the Ammonites, in a passage that we looked at last week, threatened Israel. Israel clamored for a king, and in verse 13, the king that they wanted, the Lord has set before them, even in spite of the fact that it was sinful for them to do so. He was still faithful and granted them king. Sin is a strange thing, isn't it? Israel finds herself rehearsing all the things that she's done and all the ways the Lord responded. All the things she's done was faithless. All the things the Lord's done was faithful. It's funny what sin does. First of all, it has the ability to warp our thinking. What's down becomes up. What's up becomes down. And when we make sinful choices, we may realize at the outset that it's sinful even though we choose to engage in it. But we normally find some way to justify that sin. We look at it and it it seems right to us. Perhaps in our heads we go, I deserve this. This makes sense. This is proper retribution for all the injustices I've had against me. I have to do this. There seems to be no other way out. We justify it, and it makes complete sense to us at the time. It's not until afterwards that we realize the foolishness of the decisions we made. I'm the only one that's ever had that happen. On the backside of sin, you go, what was I thinking? But at the time, it seemed so right, didn't it? But notice that Samuel is not just telling them about their sins that probably seemed right to them at the time. He's contrasting each of their sins with the faithfulness of God. God has always been faithful to His Word. They forgot God. He rescued them. They were enslaved. God rescued them. They sinfully wanted a king. God gave it. When you put all of this back to back like that, what you see more than anything was how remarkably faithful God was to the covenant that He had made with Abraham and then with Moses. He continued to care for them, even though they were often faithless. Sin warps our minds, but it can convince us also that God doesn't really care about us. We can be trapped in it, and we can think, God does not see me. God does not care about these little minor decisions that I make here or there. Until, that is, we do a survey over the entire landscape of our life, and we see that actually He has cared for us a great deal. It was us that didn't care for Him. That's why I love that song that we sing, Great is Thy Faithfulness. It's a reminder of just how faithful He's been to you. Before He essentially puts Israel on trial, He reminds them of the covenant that God has made with them. Look with me at verse 14. If you will fear the Lord and serve Him and obey His voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord, and if both you and the King who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you do not obey the voice of the Lord but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your King. The Mosaic Covenant. Again, you do good, good's going to happen. You, you disobey God, you're going to get the curses. So you see him reminding the people of the covenant that they've made with the Lord. But I want you to pay attention in particular to the first part of the reminder. He says it is to fear the Lord. That's what he wants, for them to fear the Lord. Now that doesn't necessarily mean that they're scared of the Lord, at least not properly scared of the Lord. What it is, is it's a kind of awe and reverence that produces honor and worship and love. And yes, with that fear comes the reality that God could kill you at any moment He wants to. So there is a little bit of that kind of fear there too, right? We are walking around understanding that God is sovereign and in control, right? He could take my life at any moment He wants to. I do serve Him after all. He doesn't serve me. So there is that kind of fear with it. But what it is, is it doesn't stop there. It produces honor and worship and love. It goes beyond just mere fear to a worshipful attitude due to His awesome power and His sovereign authority. So the first verdict we see is that God is faithful to His promise. But then the second verdict we see is that man stands condemned by his faithlessness. Man stands condemned by his faithfulness, faithlessness. Samuel transitions to the people in verse 16. Look at what he says. He says, you stand there. It's the middle of the wheat harvest, which is at the beginning of summer. And that means that rain is relatively rare. And so all of a sudden it begins to cloud up and at Samuel's, uh, Samuel's request and the people see the signs and wonders that Samuel is able to invoke by simply praying to this God that he's telling them about. And they see these obvious signs and wonders that the Lord is bringing before their eyes. And what this proves to them right then and there is that what Samuel is saying to them as a prophet of God is 100% correct. He is a true prophet of the Lord. But it also says that the Lord agrees with Samuel. The Lord is on Samuel's side in this. So look at the purpose of these clouds that Samuel is praying to be brought up in verses 17 and 18. He says, I will call upon the Lord that He may send thunder and rain, and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great which you have done in the sight of the Lord in asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel, so the people are now on trial. So Samuel called upon the Lord and the Lord sent thunder and rain and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. So so the purpose of the clouds coming along is to confirm that the people are guilty of the transgression against God. You stand on trial. God has been proven innocent. I've been proven innocent. You, on the other hand, are guilty. What was their sin? It wasn't just a mere desire to have a king. The law of Moses provided for them to be able to have a king. The problem was that it came from hearts that did not trust God to be their king. That was the problem. What we're dealing with here in all of this book is a heart-level distrust of God. So when the question comes to Israel, do you really love God? The answer is a resounding no. They didn't trust in his power to deliver them. They didn't think that he was worthy of worship. But most of all, they didn't have a loving fear for him. They certainly didn't love him with their heart, soul, mind, and strength. But what was the result of the clouds coming in? Seeing that the Lord was responding to Samuel and that they were actually guilty of what they had done. Here's a man in the midst of dry season conjuring up clouds behind him. It's about to come a big thunderstorm. Thunderstorms are scary enough. How much more terrifying is it when someone says, this is your sin and I'm going to prove it to you, and all of a sudden clouds start forming behind him. Come on now. I think we'd all have a little bit of, I don't know, quiver in our liver or something. What's the result of the clouds? It says in verse 18, The people greatly feared the Lord. Isn't this what Samuel said? He wanted for their obedience to the law. I want you to fear him. I want you to understand that he is still your king regardless of what you've wanted in the past. And they immediately start confessing all their sins. They tell Samuel, pray, for, pray to the Lord for, because, because we've added to our sins this evil of asking for a king. So they're there on the witness stand and Samuel's pushing them really hard. I want the truth! And they finally come clean. Yes, we asked for a king and that was sinful and we did a whole heap in helping of other sins too. They start confessing all kinds of other crimes that they've committed in the past. They really deeply fear a display of the power of God has a tendency to awaken in man certain realizations of his own sinfulness and mortality, doesn't it? You remember in the aftermath of September 11th, church attendance began to rise as people had questions. Wrestled with the tragedy that they witnessed or or even came to see their own mortality, perhaps it was very near to them. Still today, it's common to find a person who might occasionally attend church when he or she begins to feel guilty over a particular sin. They see a YouTube video, or they hear something here or there, or somebody says something, or maybe they've just committed a sin for which they feel particularly guilty. And so they go to church and they think maybe this will take care of it. And, and they see the Christians around them and they, they pay attention to what the Christians around them do. And they begin to mimic all of those things. Well, Christians, I know, they, they, they seem happy. They seem, they seem like they've got the whole sin thing figured out, so I'll, I'll do what they do. They go to church, so I'm, I'm going to go to church with them. Well, they're, they're singing these songs, so I guess i got to join in and sing these songs too. I'll try at least to learn them. They listen to these sermons. I'll do my best, alright? But the problem that they inevitably run into is that that doesn't make you a Christian. The gospel doesn't actually work that way. That's not what is meant by being a Christian. Looking around at the Christians around you and mimicking what they do doesn't make you a Christian. Look at what Samuel says to them in verse 20. Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you, and I will instruct you in the good and right way. Only fear the Lord and serve Him faithfully with all your heart, for consider what great things He has done for you. Let me read 24 again. Only fear the Lord and serve Him faithfully with all your heart. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away both you and your king. Samuel basically gives them again what Moses said to their forefathers all those many years ago and which we read in the book of Deuteronomy. Do not forsake the Lord. He won't forsake you. Act wickedly. You shall be swept away with your king. But I want you to notice something that you might otherwise miss that I tried to emphasize when I read it the first time. Look at how Samuel begins and ends this little bit that he gives them. At the end of verse 20, he says, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Look at verse 24, only fear the Lord and serve Him faithfully with all your heart. The process going forward in order to really obey the covenant that Moses has put before them was obedience that was not coming just because there were words written on a page or they were commanded by a God who actually can bring clouds and thunder and rain. It was because your hearts actually feared Him and loved Him. And therefore, you wanted to obey Him. The root of all this was a heart that that was genuinely in love with the Lord. In other words, it can't be faked. Now, you might fool everyone around you. But your life, as a member of God's covenant people, cannot be faked. Inevitably, when many people are convicted of sin, as I mentioned before, perhaps they experience that personal tragedy, and they come to church, they begin to mimic the motions of other Christians. You see, the problem arises when they begin to define Christianity their faith by all the things that they do or don't do I don't drink curse smoke or chew and I don't date women that do are you a Christian of course I am I go to church try to read my Bible it's hard I try to sing with everybody I try to listen intently to the sermons. I try my best to apply them to my life. I try to be a good person. That makes me a Christian, right? Friends, you have to understand that what is on trial is your heart, the heart is on trial. Not the necessarily the actions. It's the heart that's on trial. Yeah, you do all these things. And you don't do all those things. But it's the question that we pose in the beginning. Do you love God? That's the question. I get it. You go to church. I get it. You listen. You sing. You pray. I get it. You read all these books. I get it. You do all these things. But it still comes back to the question, do you love Him? If we're not careful, Christianity is going to be defined by a list of rights and wrongs and do's and don'ts. And before long, it becomes fundamentally the exact same as every other religion on the marketplace. There's literally no distinguishing it from Hinduism or Buddhism or Judaism or any other thing that's out there. It's just a list of do's and don'ts. Here's what happens if you don't. Here's what happens if you do. But if you have defined your life in Christ by all the criteria that you have supposedly met, I don't do these things, I do these things, then I promise you're not looking hard enough at the places where you fall short. You're not really analyzing your life. If you did, you'd realize that your ability to perfectly perform all these things is not going to work. What God actually commands you to do is too much for you. You cannot obey it perfectly. One sin is sin too many. And in a matter of time, you're going to get exhausted with all those things, and then you're going to get disenchanted with the church around you, because they're all teaching, this is what we do if we love God, and you're trying to mimic those things, and you get flat out exhausted because there's no love that actually generates your obedience to those commands. And so you run away from the church and you claim everyone's a hypocrite because all of those people preach perfection and yet every single one of them is imperfect. Never really understanding what the gospel is actually teaching to begin with. All those Christians are hypocrites. None of them do that perfectly. All the while you're missing the point. It's the heart Your love for God is what is on trial. That's the question we're asking. Do you love him? But you might ask, how do I come to love him? How does that happen? How do I even do that? Instead of just going through the motions How do I actually come to love God? Well, look at the end of verse 22. This is something that God does. He says, It has pleased the Lord to make you a people for Himself. You understand what he's saying? The Lord actually makes the people for Himself. The Lord is the one that reorients the heart for Himself to change them into hearts that actually love them. You realize Moses actually told the people that this is what has to happen. Moses told them this all the way back in Deuteronomy. Look at Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. And the people, and, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. That's what's required. What's required for obedience to God is a love that God has to provide you. He has to circumcise your heart. He has to give you a heart that loves Him. And how does He do that? Well, He does it by opening your eyes to see and your ears to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. That you are sinful people. You are corrupt to the uttermost. That Jesus became man to live the righteous life that you could never live, but die the death that you deserved and be punished suffering in your place by taking the wrath of God for your sin. He did that for you. Jesus paid your debt. This is how He made a people for Himself. So it's when you see that All of this that I have in Christ is strictly by the grace and mercy of God. Through no fault of my own, He simply was merciful to me, He stooped down to me, and He saved me. I didn't do anything to be included in this. He included me. I don't stand here as a member of His family because of some righteousness that I provided. I stand here strictly by His grace and His mercy because of the righteousness that Christ provided for me. In fact, I have no place here. I don't belong here. But for whatever reason, God included me. See, it's when you see that, and when you hear that, and when you truly grasp the gospel message, what it is, then you're freed from this burden of having to perform for God. As if He is impressed by your righteousness. And He's really astounded by all the things that you can do. It's not true at all. What He's impressed by is the righteousness of Christ who lived for you and died for you. You see, that's what the people are experiencing there in Samuel's words at the end of verse 20. Do not be afraid. You have done this evil. But what does he tell them? God is still with you, He's merciful to you. Then God changes our hearts in the hearing of the gospel. From being opposed to Him and fleeing after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, like Samuel says, but are empty, to actually loving Him. So now our heart has been changed to a heart that actually does love Him. And so we can answer the question truly, yes, I do love Him. And if you can answer that question truly, I do love the Lord, and it actually is true of you, then God is the one that has given you that heart to love Him. So then you have to see what this means for you in verse 22. What does it actually mean then? If God has changed my heart, if I love Him, He's given me that heart, and by His grace and His mercy, He has forgiven me of my sin and included me into His family, what does that mean? Look at verse 22. For the Lord will not forsake His people for His great name's sake. Why did He do it? Why did He save me? Because He loved me. Why did He love me? Because He decided to love me. But why? Because He decided to love me. Not only has Christ died for your sins, but He set His love on you so that you're always His. So if, if it didn't free you before to understand that it's the righteousness of Christ, then maybe it will free you now to know that it's not my keeping this is not based on my work either. My maintaining in the body of Christ is not... Is not based on my merit and my work, but on the work of God through Christ. God's love for you isn't contingent on your performance either. So, back to the trial that I proposed at the beginning. God is the prosecuting attorney, He's the judge, He's the jury, He's the executioner. How do you prove your love for God? Do you rattle off a list of all the things that you do and don't do? Do you love me? Prove it. Well, I went to church. I didn't drink, smoke, curse, or chew, and I didn't date women to do. I sang all the songs. I listened to all the sermons. I don't think that's how it happens. Because no matter how many examples you can give of your love for God, there are countless counter-examples. I think instead you do what David does in Psalm 139, 23. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. You see what David's doing there? He's appealing back to the Lord who's posing the question. He's appealing back to the Lord of all creation who gave him a new heart to begin with. He says, this is your heart. It's got your name on it. You put it in here, search it, try it, know it, see if there's any way that's corrupt in me and take it out. I don't want it. The result of the heart that the Lord has changed is a life of obedience, but it's the heart that has to change. That's the kind of obedience that God wants and that kind of change in the heart leads to a life of obedience. It leads to a life of confession of sin. No, Christian, you're never done with that. It's a lifestyle of confession of sin. It's a lifetime of repentance. It's a lifetime of faith. Make no mistake, the question that's on trial for the people of Israel in this passage and for you today is, do you love Him? The actions will follow the love. But the question is, do you actually love him? See, obedience does matter. Obedience is required, yes. But it has to come from a heart that desires obedience. You see, God's love for you doesn't rise or fall on your performance. If you're his, and He has changed your heart, and deep down you really do love Him. He has given you that heart. And He's going to ensure that it perseveres.